Moore's Legacy can be seated. I, uh, my name is Randy Little, if you don't know me, and uh, it's an honor to preach today here at Legacy. We've been going through an Advent series. Uh, we started out at the beginning of December where uh, we talked about how Jesus came at the fullness of time. And then we talked about next week how Jesus was the fullness of man, and then he was the fullness of God. And today what we want to talk about is the full return of Christ. And it's a weighty topic, but it's also a very rich topic. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 24 later on, if you want to go ahead and flip to your, that, that verse. But um, let me pray for us, and we're going to talk about the return of Christ. Lord, we thank you that, uh, God, you are a good God, and you are coming to get your people. And God, as I speak today, God, I know that I speak about things I do not know. God, I, I speak about heaven, and, and God, it is greater than we could imagine. And God, I speak about your word, and your word is more weighty than we could ever imagine, than I could ever present it. And, and so, God, I just pray for grace as I present your word, and I pray that by your spirit, God, that you would apply this word to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. So I want to start out with a, a story, and uh, this is a, a man I know back in my hometown and his name is not Jimmy, but I'm going to call him Jimmy. And I'm going to try not to slip up and use his real name. But uh, Jimmy was kind of a, um, a biker. You kind of picture like if you went to a biker bar, which maybe most people will never have, I don't know. But, and, and you saw a guy sit at the bar drinking beer, that's Jimmy. That's this kind of guy. He's, uh, he was a rough and tough guy. And Jimmy's wife went to my parents' Sunday school class. And... Uh, and so, but Jimmy was the kind of guy, he was not going to darken the door. You weren't going to see him ever. But one day, Jimmy had a stroke. And Jimmy, uh, well, so my, 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 my parents, like their, Jimmy's wife was telling him about the stroke. Her husband had a stroke. Same time, their car broke down. And I just happened to be at home from college and uh, with my dad. And he's like, hey, let's go over to Jimmy's house and fix their car, work on their alternator. And so we changed the alternator out, and we went and we met Jimmy. And Jimmy's in the front yard in a wheelchair, just had a stroke. And he tells me something that um, just blew my mind. But Jimmy said that he had a dream or a vision of heaven. And initially, I'm like, I don't know. You know, I've heard plenty of the stories of, uh, you know, I died and I went and saw God. But, but this story really did. It was a little bit different for me because he told me that he heard angels singing, and it was beautiful. And he told me that he was led up on a hill and he overlooked just a lot of palm trees. And, uh, and I started thinking about it. And, but what really gripped me was that this guy, Jimmy, he'd sought satisfaction in all the things of this world. Okay? He, I mean, it's like whatever he thought would give him pleasure, he would do it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, shine, he, he wouldn't you know, shy away from it. He would, he would just do whatever he wanted. But now he just wanted to go back to this place that he had seen. That's what he wanted. I mean, he's in a wheelchair, had a stroke, but that stuff doesn't really matter. What really matters to him is that he wants to go back. And so, uh, like I said, he, he, was a, he wasn't a fake guy, uh, and he was sitting in front of me, and he was actually just weeping. This guy, Jimmy, was weeping in front of me, and he was just telling me how beautiful these angels sounded. And I was just blown away. It's like, I, I don't know what to think. But as I really started thinking about it, and I said, well, let's just compare it to Scripture. Like, yeah, and uh, so I started doing that. And, but you find in Scripture, and, and Jimmy's no Bible scholar, right? He's, uh, you find in Scripture in the Old Testament that God, whenever he's bringing his people through the wilderness and brings them to a place of rest, there's always palm trees. 
And the temple is designed and, and decorated with palm trees in Jerusalem. And I thought, you know, that sounds pretty biblical to me. You know, it could be true. And somebody asked him, said, hey, Jimmy, did you see God? And I remember Jimmy saying, no, no. If I saw God, I would die. You know, he had a sense of the, the holiness, the majesty, the power of God. And I thought, you know, that sounds biblical to me too. Sounds like the God in the Bible. And so whether you believe Jimmy's story or not, you know, at the least, it's interesting. At the most, it's a glimpse of heaven. And, uh, you know, and it's really wild, too, how Jimmy started uh, coming to church. And he started coming to Sunday school class. But, but all of a sudden, Jimmy just, he didn't fit in. It didn't fit in because he wasn't, he was rough and tough. He didn't fit in because he was awake. You know, he was looking forward to heaven. He was looking forward so much to Christ's return. That's all he was thought about. That's all he was consumed about. And it was interesting how it just seemed like the rest of the class just couldn't get it. And, uh, but Jimmy was ready for this eternal rest. And he knew that right now we live in a world where we're not at rest. But there is a rest to be had. And like I said, he wanted it. And so today, that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about what does the Bible say about what is going to happen on the tail end of the return of Christ. So let's look at this passage, and uh, we'll get started. I'm going to read Matthew 24. I'm going to do 29 through 31, then skip down to 36 through 51. Verse 29 starts, Immediately after the tribulation of, of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from four winds, from one end of earth, on one end of heaven to the other. Skip down to 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known on what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing so when he comes." Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day where he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the question I want to ask is, what's going to happen at the end times? What's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Now, my wife and I, we subscribe to this uh, video app called PureFlix. And so what PureFlix does is kind of like Netflix, but it takes, um, uh, it takes every movie and it says there's going to be no unnecessary, vi unnecessary violence, unnecessary sex, unnecessary drinking, 
Um, and it just takes all those things out. So what you end up is really with like a glorified Hallmark, right? And so it's, uh, you know, Hallmark, you say, is pretty tame. Well, Pure Flix is tamer than Hallmark. And uh, my wife and I love it. And so we, uh, but we love to watch action movies, you know, and, uh, but the only action movies we can find on Pure Flix are end time movies. That's the only ones they're going to show. And so we, like I said, we love to watch them, and we have seen them all. We, you know, we started out with the Left Behind series, and, you know, we started, uh, you know, learning, hey, don't make friends with anybody named Nikolai Carpathia. You know, you kind of back up. And, uh, and then also, you know, rumor has it there's a new Left Behind movie coming out uh, this year. And so we're kind of excited. We're hoping it shows up on Pure Flix. But they've got, like, Revelation Road 1, Revelation Road 2, Revelation Road 3. they got The Mark, The Mark 2. You know, it's like these, and they keep building, building, building. Like there should be a Revelation Road 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 uh, coming out. And so when we're sick or we want to watch a movie, we love to watch these end time movies. And I always find it's interesting how these producers depict the end times. Like it's really kind of laughable to me. You know, my favorite is when people just turn into dust and then they turn to an orb of light and, and the saints beam up to, to the sky and then boom, everybody's left behind. Most of the time there's a secret rapture and, and you have people left behind. They're scrambling what to do and um, and so, I don't know, I think it's interesting. But, you know, the truth is, you know, I'm by no means sure about those movies and how it plays out. I don't know, don't know. But there are a, th- a few things that we do know from Scripture about the end times. And, and one is that Christ is sure to return. We do know that from Scripture. Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, everyone will know it. Uh, and, and it's going to start with a trumpet call. That's going to, you're going to hear a trumpet call from heaven. And there's also going to be an intense light. And it's going to light up the sky from the east to the west. Everyone will see it. Everyone will know that Jesus is coming. And then some people are going to be taken. And the other question, I'm always like, who's taken? Who's left behind? Yeah, I, w- I want to know. But the truth is that the Bible just doesn't explicitly tell us. I've got my opinion. Yeah, you can ask me later. But uh, the Bible just doesn't say. It just says that some people are. And it's going to be something that happens to you. It's going to be out of your control. And it's going to be largely dependent on your relationship with Christ. And this coming of Christ, they call it the consummation of the kingdom. And what that means is that it's just a time where Jesus comes to rule. And his rule becomes direct. It becomes immediate. It becomes uncontested. And it becomes universal. When Jesus comes back, he's coming to stay. And upon Christ's return, he's going to call you and I into account. He's going to say, how did you live as a steward of everything I've given you? And the result of that day is going to be one of two things. It's going to be eternal rest or condemnation. And so the first is rest for the saints. When Jesus comes back, he's bringing rest for the saints. It's always, in the Bible, it always talks about this rest. It's kind of like an eternal Sabbath rest. Um, there is an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel where God tells Ezekiel, he shows Ezekiel kind of a vision of this heavenly city. And he tells Ezekiel, says, listen, Ezekiel, I'll read the passage. Ezekiel 40, verse 4. And the man said to me, son of man, who's Ezekiel, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, declare all, all you see to the house of Israel. And so what I take away from that is that, that Ezekiel is being told, look forward to this rest. Look forward to it. Set your heart upon it. You should long for this rest. 
and that we should long for this rest as well. And every heartache, all the pain that we've experienced, it should be driving us forward to this day of rest. And I think often we just don't think about this rest enough. And, you know, we're guilty in the church of really not talking about heaven. And, uh, but it, like I said, it should be something that we are absolutely desiring, longing for. Day in, day out, we're looking forward to rest. Because I, I, we all love rest. I think it's, it's part of our nature to love rest, right? We, we long to be kind of refueled. You know, I want to be able to, to go more, do more. But to do that, I have to be rested. And when I am rested, I, I feel like I'm just re- I can just, I'm like, let's go. You know, I'm encouraged, I'm fired up, let's roll. And, uh, but that always comes from kind of like a heart that's been rested and is ready and eager. And, and, uh, and so we, we love that. And that's why kind of heaven is described as this eternal rest where you are charged up. You are ready to go. You're not... You're not discouraged, or, but you're, you're energized. And it's not, a, it's not like a rest that you sleep, but it's a, a living, an active, a moving rest. And, and I get a lot of these ideas from Richard Baxter. He's an old Puritan. He wrote a book called The Saints Everlasting Rest. And uh, you can find it on Audible. I listened to it. It was a really good book. Uh, if you read it, it's a thick book. You know, the Puritans, they were serious about uh, their writings, and they, they, he wrote a ton. Um, but he's got five main points about the saints' everlasting rest. And he says, one, he says, this rest is going to be a rest from our spiritual striving. He says, you're not going to need to pray anymore. You're not going to need to memorize scripture, be disciplined, or committed to your Bible reading plan. You're not going to need to share your faith. No more need for communion, for gathering together with the saints. For all these things, they were to grow us, to strengthen the church, that we would trust God's word and we would, we would trust that God is going to be faithful to save us and deliver us. But when we are delivered, all of a sudden those things are not needed anymore. Our faith now becomes sight. And all the striving spiritually to strengthen our faith is, is not needed anymore. And we will rest from our spiritual striving. Two is that God's going to give us rest from all evils. There's going to be nothing unclean, no grief, no sorrow. Back says, no consuming cares, sleepless nights on what, what tomorrow will bring. There's going to be no pale faces in heaven. No despair, no gripping fears. Nothing evil is going to be there. No more racism, no more slandering, no more divisions. Nothing. Number three is going to be the highest degree. God's going to give us our highest degree of personal perfection in body and soul. And this is pretty wild, is that you're going to be you, but you're going to be your best you. Your character is not going to be stained with sin. You won't be tempted to lie, cheat, and steal. You won't be prideful, unforgiving, arrogant. You won't hate other people. And God is working in in all these things in us now, but that day when Christ returns, he's going to make us complete. And your body, like I said, is going to be made new. There's going to be no more cancer, no more dementia, no more Alzheimer's, no more viruses, no more sickness of any kind. And, you know, I think, too, our bodies are just inadequate right now to enjoy heaven. You know, my buddy, had, um, I think I said his name was Jimmy. He's, uh, he kept saying to me all the time, he's like, Randy, it, heaven is... And he, he just couldn't get the words. He, he, just, he couldn't bring himself to say what heaven was. 
And I thought, or this vision he had, I'm I'm not sure, but he he just couldn't describe it. And he's like, it's beautiful. But he would just talk about the angels singing. He would would break into tears. But he couldn't describe it. Because I think there just wasn't words in the human language, in, in the English language, to describe what he had seen. All he could say was, it's beautiful. Because he was just inadequate. He's inadequate to describe heaven. He just doesn't have the body for it yet. But one day we're going to get a body that is, I I wouldn't say it's going to be totally adequate to know all of God, but it's going to be more adequate than what you have now. And so, uh, yeah, heaven is going to be vastly more than what we think it will be in our new bodies. And then four is God is going to be, he, God gives us the nearest enjoyment of him. Now, to be honest, I kind of see this in a dim light. It's like, yes, I, I understand. I have a sense of the enjoyment of God and being near God, like pushing into God in prayer and, and reading his word. But there's a sense that when we're near God, it's going to be a great joy to God's people. And we kind of have a sense of what that looks like with uh, just in this life now. And for an example, we have uh, Solomon back in the Old Testament. You know, Solomon was a wise king, a good king. And I imagine that he knew how to use people and not abuse people. He knew how to take his servants and get them together to work, to build the kingdom. But at the same time, to, for their own striving, that was good for the individual, it was good for the community, it was good for the king. And I'm, the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon and she says, you know, blessed are the people who dwell in your courts. Blessed, blessed are the people who are under you. Like she just, she sees all this stuff and she's blown away. And I think that's a kind of a shadow of what it's like to be in God's kingdom. Psalm 8410 says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That when you're with the king of kings, he is so good. And just being with him and how good he is to you, it's gonna bring you the greatest joy that you've ever experienced, ever And then the last part five is that God gives us the sweet and constant use of our new bodies and souls in our enjoyment of him. And so it's this interacting with God that God is good to us. We're we're in his presence and it's, we, we have great joy to be in his presence, but also these new bodies that we have, we're using them and we're enjoying these things. And, and uh, Baxter says that he's like, it's true that the more perfect the sight the more enjoyment of the beautiful object you behold. That if you can't see very good and you're looking at something really beautiful, you're like, yeah, it's beautiful. But if you can see really well and you look at the same object, you're like, yeah, that is really beautiful. Like you just have more enjoyment of it. And that's kind of a, a, what heaven is going to be like is these new bodies, new senses that get to enjoy God more than we currently do. And I find that the more you meditate on the reality of heaven, the more you think about it, the more that you have a heart that wants to go there. I remember as I was listening to that book, I was like, God, I, I want to experience heaven. You know, and it, it, your heart becomes a heart that wants faithfulness to the Lord, submission to him, a heart that must go and a heart that clings to Christ as our way to heaven. And you know what? Heaven's going to be a place of satisfaction. And it's reserved for the people of God. It's something that God gives to us. And it's wild that the God of the Bible, it's his delight to give his people eternal life, eternal rest. There's a verse, Luke 12, 32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
See, that's the heart of our God, is a heart that longs for you and I to enter eternal rest. It's powerful. But the truth is that a lot of us in this world, we just don't believe that our master's coming back. Right? We say that my master's delayed. And if we look at that, verse 48 says, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master's delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when the servant does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and he'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, it's a faithless heart that says, I really don't believe the gospel. I really don't believe that the Lord is coming back. I don't believe he's coming like a thief in the night. Faithless hearts say that God is delayed. And ever since the fall, see, we were created. And, and God created the earth. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and when he did that, he made them stewards of the garden. They didn't own the garden, but they were to work the garden, tend and keep the garden. They were to worship and obey God in the garden as stewards. They weren't the owners. They were to be submitted, submitted to the owner, the master, to God himself. But they chose, instead of being humble servants of God, they chose to be like God himself and to rebel against his, his commands and his laws. And God took them out of this restful garden and put them in the wilderness. And there are relatives. You know, I, I, I can't do it, but it is true that every one of us are descendants of Adam and Eve. We go back to them. They're our grandparents, our kin. And we're just like them. We often choose to buck God's authority, to buck his rules, and, and to say that my master's delayed and I can live as I please. And hearts that say that, hearts that say my master's delayed, they end up living lives not as stewards of the king, but they end up beating up the saints and living in self-indulgence. And so living in self-indulgence you know, it seems that part of our nature is that we're always looking for rest, right? We're always looking for something in, that's going to give us life and kind of refuel our souls. And we do this when we indulge in, we, we, that's why we indulge in things of the world is we think that the things of this world are going to satisfy me. They're going to give me rest. We say, hey, now's the time to prioritize myself over the master, over my creator, He's gone. He's not coming soon. Why don't I indulge in the things that he has given me for my own pleasure? And the result is a, of bucking God's design is we add to the fallenness of this world. See, relationships, when we indulge in relationships, they become about our satisfaction and our search for life and happiness in themselves rather than something to steward that God has given us. And so therefore, like, if you're not happy... In marriage, divorce becomes an option. Or maybe in your relationship with your friends where it's like, hey, I only want to hang out with people that I like, people that I agree with, people like me. And we kind of forsake the people that we need to be around that would tell us the things that we don't want to hear, but we push them to the side because we're about our own happiness and not about stewarding relationships and, and uniting with other believers or um, other people. And I think about parents, you know, parents and children. Children come to parents often for, hey, what can I get from mom and dad? And I just think of the prodigal son who says, hey, you know what? I, dad, I really wish that I could just have your inheritance. I don't really want to know you. I just want 
your inheritance so I can indulge in the things that I want. So instead of living as stewards, instead of, of using the things on earth to steward for God's glory, we end up indulging in them. You know, I think of things like gluttony, right? We eat and eat and eat, thinking that, man, food is, it seems to be satisfying, and I always want to eat more and more and more. But the truth is, it never does hit the spot. Eventually, you know, I'm not satisfied. And then materialism. You know, it, we become hoarders, right? We, we hoard, 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 and we, we don't give. We don't use the things to benefit other people, to benefit um, our families, our friends, for God's glory. But we, we hoard these things, and we don't, we don't steward them, but we indulge in them. People who say that my master is delayed, they also end up beating up the saints. And you just do this simply by not prioritizing the gospel. That's what results in beating up the saints, the church. See, we, the church, we're working, we're striving to seek to trust God, to cling to God's word. That's why we have our Bible reading plans and we journal, we pray. That's why we have our community or communion, tithe and mission. They're all vital for us to help us cling to Christ and to be faithful. And every time that you see somebody indulge in, your, in, in their flesh or you indulge in your flesh, what you're saying is that, hey, my master is delayed. And in a way, you're punching the bride of Christ. You're destroying her by tempting her to not believe and trust God's word. You're destroying her by tempting her to not subject herself to the master's will and his design. You're beating up Christ's bride and tempting her to not be a steward of all the things that have been given to Christ's bride from the master. You're tempting her to join in and say with you, my master's delayed, and I can join in the indulgence of the flesh. And the bride has been grossly mistreated, and that's why the master is fiercely angry. And he brings, in the second coming, he brings destruction for everybody outside of the church for this reason. In that book, Gentle and Lowly, which is a really good book, I hope you got a copy already. If not, grab it on the way out. But he talks about the anger of God, kind of the wrath of God in one of the chapters toward the end. And um, he says that moral goodness revolts with indignant anger against evil. That if you love what is good, you automatically hate what's not good. I mean, you cannot love what's good and not good at the same time. Jesus was and is the epitome of moral goodness, and he was morally perfect. Therefore, Jesus revolts against evil with indignant anger more deeply than anyone. Now, a lot of times I feel like we have a hard time with the wrath of God. And, you know, to put in perspective, you know, what, what he's saying here is like a lot of times like, I'm like, okay, you know, jeepers, uh, how angry should God be? And, uh, but I think when you ask that, what we're really saying or what we're really disclosing is that we are tainted with sin and we don't see as God sees. And, you know, I remember when I came to Christ in college, I heard a story of a man who went downtown and it might've been Nashville. I'm not sure, but he went down to all the bars and, and, uh, and everybody's drunk and walking around and, and, uh, and he just began to weep. And I thought, weep, you know, why is he weeping for? And like, can, can he handle that? You know, it's kind of like my heart in it all. But the truth is, I begin to realize that I'm saying that because I am morally corrupted. I don't see how, how wicked and awful and bad evil is because I'm, I'm so entangled in it. 
But Jesus, he's not entangled in sin. He sees how bad it is. He sees how wicked it is. Like I said, it's a sober reality. And he's coming and he says, he says, all the nations will mourn. The nations, they've not been indifferent to Christ. They've killed his saints. They've beaten up his church. They've rejected their position as stewards of the master. And they've inserted themselves as the owners of this world. And they've opposed, they've become opposed to the king of kings. And like I said, God hates what is not good. And one day, suddenly, Christ returns. And there's a verse in the Bible, Luke, 12, 7, or Luke 17, 2. And Jesus says this. He said, um, it's talking about causing other people to sin, causing his little ones in his church to sin. He said, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So it's the same thing of what we're talking about. And, you know, and I listen to that verse, and I used to not really get the full weight of that verse, but Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to wish you had a millstone around your neck, drowned in the sea, because that would be better than what I'm going to do to you on the second coming. See, Jesus is the one who brings the wrath, the destruction of the second coming for everybody outside of his church. And it's sad. And it's broken. And the reality is that souls who've lived restless lives, searching and indulging in things of this world, looking for rest in life and the things of this world, that these restless souls, they find a restless eternity. But there's good news for us today. And this good news is what God is calling us to. The good news is that God loves his church and he's come to redeem us. And he calls us to find our rest in him. See, Jesus finds us in our unrest, right? Living outside of his purposes. Living our own lives for our own pleasure and rebelling against God's commands, his laws, in our pursuits. He finds us building our own kingdoms. And he comes to us, his enemies, and he has pity on us. It's wild how God's heart is like this. God, he, he wants to redeem fallen humanity. That's what he's about. He, he loves to redeem us. He sees that we're fallen. He knows that we're weak. We talked about how he was fully man. He can relate with our weakness, our, 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 our humanity. He knows that we can't make ourselves right before him. And the good news of the Bible is that he makes a way for us to have this eternal rest. He comes and he lives a perfect life. In every way that you have disobeyed or you failed to keep God's law, God has kept his laws. Jesus kept his, the law perfectly. He was sinless, spotless. And he takes his perfect life. And he offers himself as a substitute. And he dies on the cross and he takes on our sin. He dies the death that we deserve to die so that he can give us the life that we don't deserve to have. And through his life, his death and resurrection, he accomplishes our righteousness so that we can stand before God. And by his spirit, he unites himself to us and he makes us righteous. It's what Jesus does for us. He justifies us, makes us just as if we had never sinned and just as if we'd always obeyed God. And the Holy Spirit, who God has put in his saints and his believers, the Spirit calls us to rest in the finished work of Christ. That he is the reason that we can stand before a perfect God and receive life. And we begin to trust God's word. We begin to trust God's purposes. We begin to trust God's heart to redeem us, to save us. And there's an old, old man named Augustine. And 
I think maybe third century, I'm not exactly sure, but he has this quote, and he says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And so he's hitting at this restless nature that we all have. But he says, hey, there is a rest for our hearts. And that spiritually, I have a sense of a, a stained conscience, and I know that I'm not right before God, a holy God. And Jesus says, yeah, but trust me, I will make you right. I will be your righteousness. And we begin to trust that Jesus is this righteousness that we need to be perfect. And we begin to rest in that. And we can stop striving to justify ourselves, but we can trust God and his purposes. He also gives us a new heart that experiences joy in life. And, and it's through obedience to the Lord and and. You know, God, through the gospel, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he's working in us these restful hearts that find their joy and life and rest by living as servants of the King of Kings. And it's by living according to God's commands that we find this rest. And we find satisfaction pleasing our master. And it's something this world just doesn't understand. They, they can't grasp it. They're looking for rest, but, but they just don't get it, how it is found in knowing Christ and obeying him. It's not a complete satisfaction, but it's a growing and increasing satisfaction as we work hard to bring all things, all parts of our lives under the lordship of Christ. And just as restless souls, they find a restless eternity, well, restful souls, they find an eternity of rest. I'll say it again. Just as restless souls are going to find a restless eternity, restful souls are going to find an eternity of rest. We haven't entered this rest yet. So it's a, it's a spiritual rest from our striving, but one day there's going to be a full rest, a complete rest. And that's why now that we're persistent, we have to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil that tries to lead us away from this rest. And that's where our fight lies, and that's why we're the, the church, and we, we do read and pray and study God's word, and we do all these spiritual striving um, things. And Jesus, he compels us. He says, in light of all this, stay awake. Stay awake. Went the wrong way with my notes. He says, in light of the, the, the destruction of the ungodly and the pleasures of heaven, the Lord calls us and says, stay awake. And do it so that you don't experience loss. Stay awake means that we continually live faithful lives, trusting Christ. Believe in his promises. Submitted to the king of kings. Jesus is calling us to be faithful. Because on judgment day, it's going to be a hard day for believers and unbelievers. It's going to be a hard day for everyone. See, unbelievers, you're going to have lost everything. But believers, you're going to lose all the rewards that you would have had if you had been faithful. More faithful. And Jesus talks about what faithful stewards do. He says they give them their food at the proper time. And the idea is that faithful believers or faithful stewards, they build up and they strengthen the body of Christ. They strengthen the church. See, we feed each other the word of God. And we allow it to strengthen us to believe the gospel. We feed each other the word of God. We allow it to encourage one another to stay on mission. We feed each other the word. We allow it to strengthen us to love and to serve one another. And we long to see each other stay awake and not lose our reward. 
Verse 47 says, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. See, your role in heaven, it's going to be based on your faithfulness today. Pretty wild. So this Christmas, the rest of our lives, I pray that we as a church, we look forward to the second coming of Christ. And we keep our eyes fixed ahead. There's a pastor named Leonard Ravenhill. He says, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I feel like that's what I need. That's what we need. Is we need to have an eternal mindset. And let's repent from all the ways where we begin to indulge in the things of this world for our own, own glory and not the, the good of the master. So we cannot be ashamed of his coming. And so I'm going to read a verse and, and uh, we're going to transition to a time of communion. Um, and this verse I want to leave us with is just Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works.